In the first chapter of Matthew, we read in the genealogy of Jesus, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then in 2 Samuel, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's, his master's servants. He did not go to his own house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's springtime. It's the time when kings go to the battle. The weather is unseasonably hot. He retires onto his roof. He does not intend to see her, ritually cleansing herself on the supposed privacy of her roof. She does not intend to be seen. He cannot help his vantage from the palace. He does not pretend to love her mind, to have interest in her habits. He sends for her. He takes her. He sends her home to her empty cottage. Weeks pass and the memory of her smooth skin dulls with the taste of the lips of a hundred wives and concubines. In her message, she does not remind him of her husband off fighting his wars. She tells him only of the child that's growing within her. He does not intend at the beginning to kill her youthful husband, his outstanding soldier, the outsider who embodies the loyal love of the best Israelites. 
Yet his mind is consumed with the disgrace, what the prophet and what the people will say. And those are the voices that win. Those are the voices that always win, it seems. If we decide to plot the path of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, the stories of these women's lives there start very, very troubled and very unsettling with the story of Tamar. Things start to look a bit more redemptive with Rahab, though there are still many difficult aspects of her story. And then it kind of hits a high note with Ruth. We see redemption, we see community, we see steadfast love. It's all operating the way that it should in God's land, in God's people, in God's kingdom. But then the crest turns into a cliff when we come to Bathsheba and King David. One of the things I've had to come to grips with as I've grown is that the stories I was told as a kid about the Bible aren't always the ones that are actually there. If you're wondering about this picture, this is a poster from the 1951 movie David and Bathsheba with Gregory Peck, and I'm trying to think of the gal's name. Oh, oh, yeah, Susan Hayward, thank you. It's right there. Okay. What do you see when you see that movie poster? Besides, like, besides, like, strange tags like Mighty as Goliath, which I have no idea what that even means, okay? But, but, but look, at the, look at the headline. Most Forbidden of the world's great love stories. See, whether I know it or not, I grew up with this understanding that this was a love story, or at least that it was supposed to end up as a love story. It's a really strange love story. Um, it's, it's like wrong adulterous love, I guess, to be sure. But, I mean, she had a husband, but I guess it's still a love story. I mean, they got married and they had Solomon. It has to be a love story, right? As I read this very well-known chapter of Israel's history again as an adult, it occurs to me that very little in this story has to do with love at all. This is not a love story. Indeed, very little of any of Bathsheba's life with David has to do with love. Certainly not the kind that would point us toward Jesus the Messiah. And I wonder what I'm supposed to do with that. I mean, the language of the entire encounter is really, really stunted. It's really, really terse. The entire first relationship is summed up in five verbs. David's are all control verbs. He sees, he summons, he lays. But, I mean, those are the Hebrew words, Okay. Hers are much, much more ambiguous, much more powerless. She comes in response to his summons. She returns in response to his completion. There's no further interaction save this veiled message sent by messenger until after Uriah's death. They don't talk to each other anymore. You know, there's no bucolic romps in the field together, you know, that you see in the Technicolor movie. There's also, 
to be honest, there's no indication that David even wants her for his wife. If anything, it seems his great desire is that Uriah would be the one to unwittingly claim paternity of the child, stay married to Bathsheba, and the story just ends there. That's what he wants to happen. That's the way he wants things to go. That's what he's pushing for. It's when it doesn't that he has to act in order to obfuscate his guilt. Where is this encounter a picture of love? And, and why is Matthew going to mention her in the genealogy of Jesus? And, and what is her story supposed to evoke in us? Both in how we see her, and in how we see David, and how we ultimately see Jesus. And what on earth does all this have to do with Christmas, with the advent, with the coming, with the embodiment of Emmanuel, God with us? I don't know that I entirely know, but I'm going to take a stab at it, okay? This is probably, this is, this is probably the most difficult one for me. And, and part of the problem is, is that in order for us to tell Bathsheba's story, you've got to find her voice, and she doesn't have one. She really isn't given a voice in Scripture all that much. Even Matthew, hundreds of years later, he identifies her without using her name. He identifies her as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's most trusted soldiers. She is always defined in her relationship to others rather than being a standalone character in the Bible. Okay, she's, she's the wife of Uriah, she becomes the wife of David, she becomes the mother of Solomon, but she's always in relation to everybody else. And it leaves me open to questions that I wrestle with, that, that we have to wrestle with, and I think God designed us to wrestle with in her story. The only time, in fact, that we hear her voice is in the height of her despair. Bathsheba gets exactly two words in the, in the Hebrew language in the entire book of 2 Samuel. I am pregnant. And you have to realize the amount of despair that that carries because everybody knows that her husband is in another country fighting a war. What happens when you're pregnant and you're an outsider and your husband's off fighting a war? What happens? Fill in the blanks for me. You die. She does not send him this message to be like, oh, hey, by the way, you're in trouble. She sends him the message as a very, very covert way of saying, I'm going to die because of what you did. Are you okay with that? I mean, there's no perspective allowed on what she even felt about the encounter in the first place. No understanding of how she took the mourning of her husband and marriage to the king. If you, I mean, you look, at, you look at the language again, and it just says when the time of her mourning is over, he sends again, he brings her in, and he marries her. How does she feel about that? I don't know. Nobody knows. Does she even want to be his wife? When their child dies... Who do we hear about, whose who's pain do we hear in the scripture? 
David is the one who's on his knees and he won't eat and he won't drink and he won't do anything and he won't sleep and he's crying out to the Lord and then the child dies and he gets up and he washes his face and he has this conversation and he goes about his business. How long did she hold her child while he had washed his face and gone about his business? I don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. And we don't just because we don't hear her pain doesn't mean it's not there, right? Only at the side of David's deathbed, at the beginning of First Kings, is she allowed a voice to pour out her despair and her fear of the future. And her fear is this. It's only because of the king's status that she and her son have been protected. Unless his promise to give the throne to Solomon is fulfilled, her mostly silent life is going to end silently and swiftly at the executioner's blade along with her son. We will be treated like criminals, she says. And when you're an outsider and a criminal in the kingdom of Israel, the penalty is death. And even then, her words are not spoken to my husband. The words she uses, she addresses him, my lord, the king, because that's who he will always be in relationship to her. The king who took me. And though her life ends in prosperity and security at Solomon's side as the dowager queen, one has to wonder about all of these unsaid words. What do we do with all of these unspoken words? All this unexplained experience. She survives abuse, she survives loss, but she survives silently. And what am I supposed to do with that? There is something really, really interesting tucked in her story, though. It's really, really important for us to see. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, you look in verse 24 and 25. David went and comforted his wife, Bathsheba. And when he slept with her, they conceived a son again. And when he was born, they named him Solomon. And this is the part I want you to hear. God had a special love for that child. And sent word by Nathan the prophet that God wanted to give him a second name. Jedediah. Beloved by God. This is where God gets to say something about the whole situation. God's already said what he thinks pretty clearly about David's involvement in the situation. But here's where God gets to say something about Bathsheba. This is where God gets to kind of inject his own commentary into the whole situation. Earlier, like I said, his, his feelings toward David are expressed displeasure. But what about her and what about the child who in essence is a part of her? Beloved by God. 
This may not mean much to us in regard to Bathsheba unless we understand the connection that the Bible sees between mother and child and also between what a name means and the reality that it communicates. Bathsheba's life appears unnoticed. It appears peripheral compared to David, but there is one who sees her. There is one who notices her. There is one who knows her and knows all of those unspoken words and knows all of that unexplained experience, who knows the depth of her heart. God has seen everything. He has heard every silent word, every unanswered question, every muffled cry, every silent tear. He knows. And so he sends word to her through the prophet. I have a name for your house. I have a name for your family. Because let's remember something. We've been talking about Tamar. We've been talking about Ruth. Right, and there's this whole concept of raising up children in honor of the in honor of the dead, right? That's something that's really woven into this culture. And so this may be David's son, but in some ways it's Uriah's son too. And it's very much Bathsheba's son. It's very much her house, her name, her honor, her legacy, her life is kind of wrapped up in her son. He says, I've got a name for you. A reality that surpasses the silence that you feel. And it is this. You shall be called loved by me. Not beautiful object. Not temptress. Not even wife of Uriah or mother of Solomon. I have a name for you and I call you through the life that I created in you, beloved. That's my name for you. That's who you are. And that name gets, gets to surpass all of the other names and all of the other perspectives in her. We suffer sometimes in the silence of the Advent season. There are unspoken words, there are unanswered questions, there are muffled cries, and there are unseen tears. We become isolated in a packed house. We become unknown amongst our closest blood relations. We feel out of sync in a time of festivity where it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, and we're quietly dying in the darkness. Longing for the light. I don't know, maybe that's how our whole life feels sometimes. Like Bathsheba, we are a mystery even to ourselves. Unknown, seemingly unseen, no voice, no power. Maybe that's how we feel. Matthew will not let us be unknown in the presence of the Messiah. Like Bathsheba, this Advent, the living word of God comes to be God's voice, to rename you, to give you voice to his reality, that you are his beloved, that he came for you. If you hear nothing else 
this Advent, I pray you will please hear this. Jesus came for you because he loves you. So lift up your eyes. Strengthen your heart. Because Jesus comes again for you. Because he loves you. Hear that. Hear the truth of the gospel. There's also a reality that it's from David's failure that Jesus comes. God makes a promise to David before he sins with Bathsheba that God is going to bring the everlasting king from his lineage and God is faithful and he will make good on his promises even when David fails to be the king that God required him to be. When Israel first asks for a king, Samuel is instructed by God to warn them. God says, I'm going to give you what you want, but listen, this is the way the kind of king you're talking about operates. He's going to take your sons to be soldiers. He's going to take your daughters to be maidens in his court. He will tax and he will use because that's the way humanity, even the best of you, operates. You consume. It's what you do. And David's no different, even with a man after God's own heart. Instead of embodying God's steadfast love, he stumbles over self-interest, he stumbles over desire, and he grasps for what is not his to consume. And that's a sin as old as shiny apples and serpents, isn't it? And Matthew holds up the wife of Uriah, shiny apple that she is. Beloved by God, but consumed by David. As a really, really stark reminder to anyone who reads the gospel. You are crying out for Messiah to come. You are crying out for one like David to come. And Messiah has come, and he is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is one from David. But let's make one thing clear. This king is not like David. He's better than David. He does not come to consume. He does not come to take offerings from his subjects. He comes to be the offering. To be the one who is consumed on behalf of his subjects. And every time you and I gather around this table and we say, we remember these words of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, Take and eat because this is my sacrifice for you. We remember that this is not the king we expect. This is something better than what we expect. Jesus is not going to have heart after God. He is going to have the heart of God because he is God. And Jesus is still not the king that you and I expect. And his kingdom is still not the kingdom that we expect. And we've got to remember that when we start to become comfortable. We're thinking that we've got this whole Jesus thing 
figured out. The world around us continues to consume. And it reaches a feverish pitch in this cold, dark season. It doesn't matter what it is. Food, presence, busyness, people, relationships. We open wide and we try to fill ourselves. But our king comes in a feeding trough. Ready to be consumed. Ready to empty himself on our behalf. That we might be filled with his spirit. If we're his disciples, we will not only be rejuvenated by his steadfast love, we will turn around and we will operate out of that love. How are you going to abandon yourself for another as you celebrate the king who comes this season? How will you give voice to the suffering silent and how will you call them loved by God this Christmas because they're loved by you? Prepare the way for the Lord, church. Prepare the way for his love. Prepare the way for his kingdom.